if you don't kind of enjoy or at least tolerate well balancing your checkbook, you're probably not going to be a good businessman unless you learn. Nobody balances a checkbook anymore. Well, I hate to break metaphorically that to you. speaking, I mean keeping track. Welcome to another episode of the Essential Craftsman Podcast. I'm Nate. I've got my dad here, the Essential Craftsman. How are you doing? Good. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining us. We want to talk about spec houses today, but not in particular our spec house or the series, but just spec houses in general. We we, we use the word spec a lot, and we haven't maybe defined it in a long time, but spec is short for speculation. So why don't you give the listeners maybe the 30-second overview of what a spec house is and, and sort of the, the groundwork. A spec house is a house that you're building on speculation. That is, you're betting, you're gambling, you're rolling the dice that you can find a piece of ground, build a house on it that somebody else will like well enough and will have enough money to buy from you, that they will approve of the choices that you made about colors and textures and number of bedrooms and access and that they will that the market will be strong enough that there will be a buyer before you get tired of paying interest on the money you borrowed to build it and you sell it and hope you make some money. That's a spec house. Yeah, and it's it's used specifically at single houses, but that's I don't know why because people build trailers on spec or whole subdivisions on spec. I mean, that that's the right. concept behind building a subdivision. I'm going to mm-hmm. develop these 30 houses that's right. and on speculation, but that's not a spec Beck project. Oh, that's just a development, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But people will build like a trailer and then try to sell it, right? As far as just manufacturing, you mean make something yeah, for just, sale just on the open market? Speculate, yeah, speculate. Like, I'm going to build this and I think I can sell it yeah. for more, maybe a guitar. Yeah. I'm going to build this for, although that's maybe not realistic these days with uh, how cheap you can get a good guitar. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you can take that all the way down to the donut shop, right? They are speculating right. that they're going to get up in the middle of the night and make donuts, and they'll be sold the next day before they get so stale they're junk. Yeah. So I, I guess it's just, it's retail. It's small-scale retail with houses as your product. Yeah. As compared to a custom home builder where you find a person that wants a house and probably has a plan, and you propose a price and a contract to them to build exactly what they want, exactly where they want it. And then the whole business aspect is how to provide what they want, meet, get their approval as the project goes along. And at the end of the day, get your final payment that includes the profits that you made for providing that service. Yeah. So in that case, you're selling a service. In the other case, you're selling a house. And in, in the case of a spec house, the, the money you're hoping to make is sort of made on risk. In other words, mm-hmm. you're you're rolling the dice that yes, you'll be able to sell it maybe even beyond your best case scenario, yeah. but you're taking the risk that maybe it won't sell for two years yeah. and you're going to move into it or have to rent right. it out or go to some sort of plan B or C. Yeah, that's right. Because when you're building a, a, a house on speculation, there are holding costs that mm-hmm. that house doesn't just sit there waiting to be purchased by someone without continuing to cost you money or at least interest you're not making as if savings actually paid interest anymore. Yeah. But holding costs are very real taxes and insurance and interest and deterioration and, and, and so it, it is a giant roll of the dice. Yeah. And a house, it's not like making a meal, like maybe a fast food place makes a hamburger speculating. Somebody's going to walk in and buy it. Fine. Probably they will. But think about, for example, right now with what happened over the course of four or six weeks in our yeah. economy where 
um, people have people who are in the middle of a spec house, well, like us, like us, <laughs> like us <laughs> are are maybe having to, you know, cross their fingers and toes a little tighter. That yeah. I hope there's still a buyer out there for this. You know, it's interesting. What a year and a half ago, when we were, or two years even, when we were showing showing you guys the plans of what we were going to build and talking about building a house on speculation. There were a couple guys saying, don't do it, don't do it, the market's going to collapse. And we thought, well, yeah, maybe, but we set our hand to the plow, there's no turning back. And as we were coming along, we were thinking, huh, this thing's going to be done before the predictable economic downturn probably happens. Mm -hmm. But actually, that kind of got accelerated, so we'll yeah. see what this actually turns out to be. It was a couple months ago, but there was a spec house built somewhere in LA, Beverly Hills, that I think was sold for like tens of millions of dollars. I mm. want to say like $50 million. Wow, nice house. It was a spec house, again, speculating, but the guy parked exotic cars in the garage that went with the house yeah. and he put arcades and movie theater and it was he was speculating that there would be some uber rich person. My point is that a spec house doesn't inherently imply super cheap builder grade right. like bare bones you it just implies you're speculating on someone's going to buy your particular house ours for example is a couple notches above a built well several notches above a builder grade right um it, it's not it's not the same as a uh how, how do you refer to like a a low-end starter home like in a slur What's the well just a a starter home yeah you know classic three bedroom two bath 1750 square feet um, it, that's just sort of a standard cookie cutter yeah. idea of what you would build to maximize the size of your pool of potential buyers. Yeah. There's a lot of people that want a house like that. And there yeah. is a single digit number of people that want a $50 million house with a Ferrari yeah. in the garage already. In fact, I think it was on the market for years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I wonder how the guy did on it. I, I don't know, but geez, no thanks <laughs> for me. Yeah. Okay, so uh, why don't why don't you tell the viewers just your history with spec houses? Have you done these before? What's the what's the general? Yeah, you, this is not your first rodeo. It's not my first rodeo, but I don't not, I do not have miles of experience in building and selling houses. Um, I when I was a kid, when I was well, when I was Nate's age, I was sure that I would build a lot of houses on a speculation basis and sell them. Well, life didn't work that way. I ended up building a lot of other things and remodels and additions and providing a service to people to build the things they wanted rather than you know building and selling my own property. But I, the one guy that I know that absolutely fulfilled that dream, and it kind of is a dream, from a carpenter's perspective, or at least a carpenter like me, it is sort of the ideal way to use your skill set. Building a house the way you want to build it to the market that you want to sell to, making all your own decisions, you know, sailing under your own flag and then sell it clean deal build another that's ideal and the only guy that i know so to cut in reading between the lines doing the work without a customer to please yes on a day in day out that's basis. right you're not you're not pleasing anybody with the building inspector and whoever your lender is yeah um the one man that i know well that's done that is steve hood you've met him on the channel Steve has stayed right here in this small town, and I'd love to have him on here, but he's so quiet. He's kind of an in shy, introverted guy. I just don't think he could do it. Yeah, we'll pry it out of we'll, him. We'll pry it out of him because if he, if Steve said something about building a, a mid-level, an entry-level spec house, you ought to listen to him because he really knows. You know, he. But personally, me, I have built and sold two 
houses in Las Vegas. I have bought, remodeled, and sold eight houses, and then I've built a long string of other things for other people. Yeah. But as far as as far as my own houses to build and sell, really, this is number three. Yeah, but spec. You know, we, we started by saying spec could be a lot of things, but it, it's kind of not. Spec really implies buying the land, building from the ground up, punching in the utilities, mm-hmm. never moving in. Yeah. And all of the other things that people and tradesmen do, flips and remodels, and are 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 also deals. Mm-hmm. But that's not. It shouldn't be mistaken as a spec. A spec yeah. is its own animal. That's right. The two houses that I did in Las Vegas. As a young man, I used what I perceived to be the advantage of having to live somewhere anyway and having a mortgage payment anyway to buy the ground, build the house, move my family in, and then when I was ready, sell that house to do it again. I mean, lots and lots of people have done that. It was interesting that I was never able to take a long enough view at the timing of the economic cycles and I always ended up building just at just past the peak and then occupying mm-hmm. as it went into the slow period and selling at the end of the slow period usually before it got back to the peak. So I was always 180 out. But I still had the wonderful experience of building the house and sort of getting that hard education. Did you make money on those houses? I, I thought I was making some money. But in fact, the short answer is yes, I sold them for more than it cost me to build them. But in the rearview mirror, when I think about the effort of finding the deal, building it, moving in, living there for a period of time, selling it, and then needing to move out into into interim housing mm-hmm. and doing it again, that was hard. Yeah. The, the reason that tradesmen do that, or one of the things that has been built into our tax structure is if you build a house and live in it for two years, there's no capital gains tax on the, on the gain. Mm-hmm. Now, that's appealing. If capital gains is 20%, is it 20% now? I think it's 15 or 10, but it's still a lot. It's still a lot. And when I was doing it, it was about 20. And if you sell it in less than a year, I think it's ordinary income. It's ordinary income. So then, then you're really paying taxes Then you're pay, paying real taxes on it. So I, 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 was, I thought I was being smart to sort of shelter from that. And, you know, maybe it was. I always, I always made a little money on remodeling and improving and adding on to houses, but it never really, I, I never made it click the way some guys did. But I got a lot of great experience, right? How did you finance those houses? Because it's not cheap. And for most kind of right off the job site framers putting together, yeah. you know, the cash to frame build houses is not easy. Yeah, for it, anybody, it's not easy. It's not easy. So I had leveraged um, buying and remodeling and upgrading and selling some houses into a little some equity. So, so I started with that. you put together a little bit of cash. I put own. together enough cash to buy the lots okay. usually. And that's not easy. It's not easy to get to that point. Right. And then with the title to the lot in hand, a construction loan can be had if you can find somebody that'll bet on a, a young tradesman who maybe doesn't have a general contractor's license, but you can convince a loan officer that you actually can build the house. I think I used savings and loans both times, actually. They were a little easier to deal with. And they had a thing where they would roll over from construction financing to long-term financing for very little additional money, very few points. They were friendly, mm-hmm. you know. But a construction loan is a hard thing to get. Yeah. And, and I don't blame banks for being um, spooky about construction loans. Yeah. Because think of it, you've loaned money on a project and some young guy is, has convinced you he can do it. And he spent a bunch of money on framing and a bunch of money on roofing and maybe he's the windows are in it. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason or combination of reasons, he's gone or upside down or you can't find him. And now the bank 
is holding the title to a piece of ground that has a partially built structure with who knows how many yeah. um, material liens or mechanics liens, how encumbered the title is to that property, and what's partially built is actually not an asset, but it's a liability. Yeah, It has no value until it has a certificate of occupancy issued on it. And so yeah. it's a tough loan to get sometimes. I wonder how those loans are these days after our real estate bubble of 2005 and six, And I, I wonder how, the, I wonder if it's, it's gotta be more tough now, but I haven't heard of anybody doing know. this in a long time. I, I, I wonder, I'm sure it's no easier now no. than it was then. Can't, can't be. And easier. it wasn't easy then. It was not easy then. Yeah. Plus that adds an, another inspector to the whole job. All right. It, does, depend, does the bank it depends on your lender. Okay. It depends on your lender. So, you know, sometimes there's a very elaborate system of, um, a little escrow account is set up and the money is to, is put in the escrow account and the draws are made and have to be authorized by the lender and, 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 and it's just, it's such a pain doing yeah. that. It's so that gets back to the, to the beauty of a situation that, well, like the house we're building right now, we're not dealing with a lender and it's easy to, to overlook or take for granted how much easier it makes yeah. it. But Steve Hood got to the point where he didn't have to struggle with lenders, and it just streamlines the whole process. Yeah, yeah. Um, the requirements they can put on of every person who works, they need to see every insurance certificate and yeah. licensing thing, and that's fine, except for the obvious fact that when you're young and trying to make money on it, maybe you want to go there with your wife and paint yeah, that's to right. save money. Yeah, that's and right. the bank, that could be some kind of, I don't know, but maybe that's some kind of violation of their of the, their contract. The, the, the bank will not, well, in my experience, the bank is not going to pay you for the work you do to build the house that you're borrowing the money from them to move into. They're not yeah. going to do it. And so so you're doing it to save the money, but there's no way to, uh, your cash flow suffers yeah. You know when you're doing that. And it's not an exaggeration to say that the deck is stacked against that first-time home builder. It's just hard. Yeah. And if you have access to, if you have an uncle or somebody who will help you, that's great. But you gotta be you got to be gentle on your uncle because that money's important to him too, and he may need that for his retirement or when he's, you know, yeah. when his hair is gray. And so there's just, you're stepping into a much bigger league when you start yeah. doing that. Were there, when you did those two spec houses, were there parts of the process that you were kind of fuzzy on or learning as you went? Or did you kind of have a fully developed, you know, grasp of how these I, things happened by that time? I, I did not have a fully developed grasp. Um, but I knew I had become friends with, with the guys on the job site who were doing side hustle electricians, side hustle plumbers, side hustle HVAC guys, guys just like me mm -hmm. with different areas of expertise. And I trusted them. Mm -hmm. I relied on them and I picked their brain mercilessly and I brought them over there and I would, I, they would work there in the evenings and give me a boost and lay me out so I could do part yeah. of the work. So I compensated for my lack of experience with the experience of my friends on the job sites. Yeah. At, separate from learning and mastering your trade, and picking up side hustles and side work, there's just learning how to run a business and operate a business that is a skill set that some people either have or develop. It's a short step to go from a journey level plumber to somebody with a license, a specialty license, and now you are a plumber and you've got a truck and you've got a and you've got your business license and you have your name in the yellow pages or online or however you market now. And instead of making in today's dollars, I'll say um, twenty-eight to thirty-five dollars an hour working for a plumber. Mm -hmm. You're making seventy-five to one hundred and twenty-five dollars an hour as the plumbing contractor, mm -hmm. and 
And so lots of particularly the mechanical tradespeople and drywallers and roofers end up making that step. Yeah. It's interesting looking at it from the outside as a carpenter or welder. It often happens, though, in electrical and plumbing that guys remain contented to be just an electrician and a plumber because you make pretty good money. Mm -hmm. But drywallers and roofers don't make much money. And so if you ever want to have money, you've got to be entering into the deals with the owners and actually making something. Now, maybe kind of to uh, wrap this up, um, let's swing it back to our spec house. And the viewers know this, but this isn't a typical spec house because we're not overly concerned with selling it and making a big profit i mean it'd be nice but it would be nice we're hoping to just come away with the videos intact and and have that was the speculative portion of this house but we did kind of make a few mistakes if i could go back i don't know if we would and i don't know if you feel different but i think the house is maybe a little more complicated than we needed to do for Mm -hmm. to to make the point (laughs) to teach about building a house yeah yeah lesson learned yeah i mean between the complicated aspect the size of the house and yeah. the constraint of the lot. It was just a, it was a challenging mouthful for sure. And I, I'm sure a lot of people have been in this situation in other parts of their life. It's called biting off more than you can chew. <laughs> That's it, it's what it's and called. the reason you bite it off is because it makes sense. You think you can handle it. You, you want to eat it or digest it or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And it's an easy mistake to make. I'm yeah. glad that we didn't do a, how to develop a 400 house, you know 30 acre site that would be a much bigger mouthful so yeah i mean that's such a great metaphor right biting off more than you can chew you only bite it off because it smells good and it tastes good and you're hungry it's why you bite it off and and you you just can't help it i mean it's there and you bite it off and you realize wow you know i don't know if i'm going to get this down or not and it it was never that for us on this house in context of the work or the house but the combination of the filming and the editing and the and the the time commitment and the emotional cost of the of the channel along with the house, I think we underestimated. A hundred percent. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Although we're we're going through the videos now from last summer. I think the roofing video is being put together as we speak, and that was happening in early November. That's not six months ago, but it's five months ago, I yeah. guess. Mm-hmm. And um, I think in a couple years once it's all said and done, like most things that are really hard and difficult, when you look back at it, it doesn't seem quite like that yeah. big a deal. And you kind of remember the the good parts and the the parts that are not as fun seem to fade away easier and quicker. And that's that's a good thing. I, thank goodness for that. Thank goodness for that. Or the population of each family would be one child, right? Yeah. So since we spoke about tradesmen, let's uh, just wrap up on this. Because I know we have listeners who are young tradesmen right now, and there is some romance in working with your hands and building wood, but for the most part, it's not that fun. And I know a lot of guys in the trades are kind of actively paying attention to find a way to, if not move out of the trades, at least make a living without breaking their back. They would rather weld in their house and build go-karts for fun than, you know, day in, day out. So what what do you say to those guys about, you know, taking on a speculative venture, whether it's side jobs, a spec house, uh, a business. What, what do you say to those young guys who are trying to decide how they get out of the okay. sort of hamster wheel of being in the trades? Hamster wheel, indeed. So the first thing is you're right to want to make more money because probably you're worth more money. 
and it's a sense that your family needs more money, but you've got to be a little careful of that because that there's no end. There's never enough. There is never a time when anybody ever says, I'm making enough money. Yeah. Now, now that's not exactly true. I mean, I've heard that there are people who say that, but it's, it's a hard thing to ever say that. And it's an easy thing to think I have to make more. So yes, you got to make more money. And there's only a couple ways to do that. And both of them involve, they all involve producing more work and taking on more responsibility. I mean, that's how it happens. So you have to be realistic about what your skill sets are. For instance, if you don't kind of enjoy or at least tolerate well balancing your checkbook, you're probably not going to be a good businessman unless you learn. Nobody balances a checkbook anymore. Well, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> I mean, keeping track, right? Yeah. Keeping track. If you don't like to keep track, if you don't like to line things up financially, yeah. if, if you can't. So what? how would it be described now? Well, I, yeah, I know, I know the point you're making. I, I would say the point you're making, save money. Well, that's a, um, that, that'd be the next thing. Sort if you, of keep if track. You, and If you can't keep track of your money, you're not going to save any money. Yeah. And if you never save any money, you're never going to be able to get any freedom to do anything except what you're yeah. doing. That, that's the big thing is that you have to find a way to save enough money to buy your own freedom. That's how, that's how, that's how people have always bought their way out of slavery yeah. is with money. And the easiest way to start buying your way out of slavery is to reduce your overhead, which means if you've got a payment on a new truck, you probably can't afford it. And so get, get real straight in your mind about what cars are. All they are is a way to get you from home to work and work to home and home to church or home to the ball game or home to wherever you go. They just get you around from point A to point B. And if you let them, they will impoverish you. So reduce your overhead find a way to save some money or at least minimize expenses, find a way to be focused on keeping track, keeping your ducks in a row so that your bills are paid on time, however you balance your checkbook. Yeah. You got to be able to pay your bills on time. You have to, if you do those things, if, if you make habits of those things, you're going to be able to find a way out of the hamster wheel. Yeah, that saving money, balancing your checkbook, all that is, I think it's a little bit under underrated these days. And I'm thinking about all these startups and in, in our day and age, you hear about big investment getting put into these startups and people finding investors and all this right. kind of thing. And I, I really feel like that has kind of tainted the way people think about starting a business. And I know a lot of that is because they're big tech operations and they need millions of dollars. But you hear about people who kind of think about even their small contracting business that way, like someone needs to invest so that I can do this. As opposed to if you were able to save, let's say $5,000 over the course of a couple of years or whatever, that might be all it actually takes. Because if that can buy you two months, let's say, mm -hmm. of getting by without a paycheck, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. a lot of times is kind of all it takes. And mm -hmm. so now you're not relying on an investment from an uncle or anything yeah. else. It's You're kind of just buying your own time. And so my, my point is, and it's served me and Allie well that yeah, saving money and being kind of frugal. And then maybe the last thing that I, I could think of would just be being patient in general, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I know when I was younger and still in a lot of ways, but you just instinctually think that you kind of need things now and whether it's success or this business or whatever, like it's got to kind of happen right now. And, and it, it just doesn't work that way. It, it does not. You got to be patient. You got to right. kind of 
wait and might take years. And when, right. the, when the moment arises, that's when you take your shot. And yeah. it's easy to sort of get little skittish you know thinking like i gotta do something right now gotta do something right now and then kind of go off half cocked and that's so that's an easy way to make a mistake so true there's there's a cliche that says life is what happens while you're making other plans and it is so easy to get caught up in just what nate's talking about sort of a fever i gotta do something i gotta do something i gotta do something i gotta do something and all the while your life's going by yeah. And if, on the other hand, you can push it a little further into the back of your mind and say, I've got to do something when the right moment presents itself, not I've got to do something now. Yeah. That, uh, and in the meantime, if you're keeping your overhead down, keeping your standard of living down, living below your means, that is, that is don't have the nicest house or nicest apartment or nicest car that you can possibly afford, but have the situation that will enable you to have some measure of contentment and save some money, then when the deal comes along, you'll be ready to do something instead of standing there with your hands tied with a debt burden that you can't hold up. So that's the easiest way because you're learning something at work. You're learning a service that people need. You'll be ready to sell that to the highest bidder if you can step away from the subsistence level income that you have now on a payroll and step out and be your own man. But that takes some money. Okay, thanks for listening, everybody. If you have uh, questions or comments, YouTube is the place on our second channel there. you have any last-minute items of business for the listeners or anything before we sign off? We're, just for let the record show, we are in a social distance quarantine yep. world, and it's bizarre. And it's nice to talk about something besides that, but let the record show. This yeah, is amen. a weird time. <laughs> and, and if you're stuck at home and you're not able to go to work and your money is all going out and nothing's coming in and you don't know how you're going to make it, you're going to make it. I mean, the sun's going to come out again. There's going to be some turbulence. Who knows how turbulent. But just keep learning something. And uh, just keep keep watching for the right pitch. And when the right pitch comes by, you're going to hit it. But don't waste your energy swinging at the bad pitches.